Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Class 5 on The Return of the King. So we are past the destruction of the ring and doing our first of two classes on the long denouement. And one of the questions that I hope that we'll get to uh, by the end of class today is why? What's the point of this long thing. I mean, of course, this is something that everybody was talking about when the Return of the King film came out. Um, one of the things that I know I, as a Tolkien fan, was most gratified by in the Return of the King film was the fact that Jackson kept, not quite all, but most of that, you know, that same basic shape of sort of uh, progressive closures uh, as, the, as the thing kept going on. But people who did not know the books kept complaining about this and, and, and laughing about the fact that the film had so many endings. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I, I want to be thinking about that, you know, as we begin, as I say, our first of two entire classes on this long section of the book, which seems, you know, to some people longer than it, it should be or longer than they would expect it to be. And I want to talk about that. I, so the, the, the question I hope to get to is why do we, why do we get this? Why is this happening? Before we get to that, um, I want to take a long look at Eowyn. This is a, a big topic and I, I want to take a little bit of time with this. I've gotten a couple questions about this and people want to talk about this. What's going on uh, with Eowyn and how do we understand that? There are several passages I want to look at. I've talked about this before, but I want to look at some passages in a little bit more detail than I've usually done um, in order to try to understand that. Uh, and then, but first, before I do that either, I want to do style time. Um, and this too is in, uh, uh, is in the, uh, is, is a request I've gotten from a couple, um, students. So we're gonna, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna carry on and talk about style time. In particular, I want to start off with the exhilarating subject of syntax, uh, which I know might not seem very exciting, but it's uh, it, it's an element of Tolkien's style that a lot of people um, either don't notice or um, or uh, I, I, I don't fully understand. Um, so I want to I want to kind of draw some attention to it uh, first. Let's go back to a passage we've looked at before. Um, and here, I only want us to be thinking about the sentence structure here. Look at how these sentences are put together and how this passage works, okay? Think about, think, think about syntax. Think about the clauses that these sentences are made of, how they're constructed and how they're put together. What patterns do you notice? With that, he seized a great horn from Guthlaf, his banner-bearer, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder, and straightway all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain, and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Aemir rode there, the white horse-tail on his helm floating in his speed, and the front of the first Aorid roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was borne up on Snowmane like a god of old, even as Arome the Great in the battle of the Valar when the world was young. 
His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. What do you notice? What do you notice about the style here? Again, when I t- talk about style, I'm not talking about word choice. I'm not talking about uh, uh, you know references or anything, just syntax, how the sentences are put together. This is an important, and I, I think very... I am quite convinced, a very conscious choice on Tolkien's part when he gets to passages like this. Um, yeah, uh, Yana says, uh, a lot of commas and not a lot of periods. Definitely true. Um, Tony Mead says, the constant use of and builds and keeps momentum. Yeah, look at all the ands in there. Uh, Yana was noticing that too. Daniel says, using the conjunction, uh, and it shows a density of, 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 of actions. Kay also was pointing to the, the rolling and sentences. Yes. Um, what you see here is, if you look at that second paragraph in particular, if you look hard, you can find some subordinate clauses, but you won't find very many. What you get in this sentence, in these sentences here, by and large, are a whole bunch of sh- of short and simple independent clauses joined together by conjunctions. Especially and, though you'll notice we get a lot of fours and a few buts, but they're all conjunct, they're all just conjunctions. They're not subordinating. Uh, they're not subordinating terms. We don't get that many witches. We don't get many that's. We don't get many, um, we don't get many becauses. We get and, 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 and. Um, this is called paratactic structure. So there are two, there are two basic kinds of, of, of sentence structure. Um, you know, this sort of, uh, syntactic approaches. One is called paratactic and the other is called, uh, is called hypotactic. Um, a hypotactic sentence structure is where you take the individual ideas that you're joining together um, and you subordinate them, you, you present them hierarchically. In other words, you use a lot of subordinate clauses. Um, you know, so you're, you're taking these ideas, but you're, but you're, um, uh, but you're uh, uh, showing the relationship between them. Um, you know, so for instance, to use, uh, uh, you know, if you look up uh, hypotactic and paratactic uh, on Wikipedia, you won't find very much. But what you will find uh, is one, one, one useful little bit that somebody uh, usefully put into the, into the Wikipedia entry um, is uh, an interesting little illustration. I'd go a little bit further than it goes, though, um, in sort of showing the joining of clauses. So, for instance, if you have, I think there are two sentences where uh, it was warm and sunny outside, we went for a walk. You can just say those two things as separate sentences. If you want to join them, if you want to connect those two ideas um, and not just simply say both of those two things, um, there's a there's a pretty significant difference uh, in uh, in saying it was warm and sunny outside and we went for a walk, or to structure that much more hypotactically, that is to hi- to make those things into a hierarchy and demonstrate a relationship between them, and say because it was warm and sunny outside we went for a walk. Now it's not necessarily a new idea. Uh, There is an implied link between those two things, even if they're presented as two simple sentences with periods after them. Um, But the hypotactic structure puts those in in an explicitly sort of, you know, cause and effect 
relationship there. It spells that out. Paratactic structure uh, just takes these ideas and leaves them as not quite freestanding ideas, but connects them with just conjunctions. Usually and, though sometimes for, and sometimes but. Um, so uh, that's... Uh, that's so, so <laughs> yeah. Kay says hypotactic is when there are not enough tactics. Yeah, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Um, but uh, uh, but it, this comes from hypo meaning under, so it doesn't mean like a lack of, uh, but rather uh, sort of the, the subordination of things. You know, the placing of one thing under another um, in the in the in the sentence structure. Um, when Tolkien describes, especially dramatic scenes, especially action sequences, he tends to use paratactic structure. This is something that was very common um, in a lot of medieval literature. You see a lot of this in Mallory, for instance. If you read Sir Thomas Mallory, I know Tolkien is not the biggest Mallory fan in the world, but Mallory does paratactic structure really well, especially in fight scenes. It's a great way uh, to keep the, the, keep, sort of keep the action coming. And it, it's, it's, it's better than just coming to full stops for a couple reasons. One reason, of course, uh, is that, you know, so first of all, you don't want really long and, you know, sort of architectural sentences with lots of different hierarchies uh, of significance and, and, and lots of subordinate clauses, because, of course, it takes time to untangle those. You've got to sort of sit down with those. I mean, have you ever been talking and gotten turned around in your own syntax, right? And have had, had a hard time parsing even the sentence you're attempting to construct. I know this happens to me all the time. Um, or, or, or certainly, again, you know, you're, you're listening to something or you're listening to somebody read aloud something really complicated and you're like, wait, come in again. I didn't see how all those things fit together. Obviously, that kind of reaction is the last thing you want in the middle of swift action. You want to convey swift action? Simple sentences are better. In, you know, independent clauses. But you don't want it to just to sound choppy. You want, you want to, gain, you, to maintain that momentum? Link them with conjunctions. But of course, the other thing here is that from Mallory and back forwards, in, er, er, back forwards, backwards in time, chronologically, you have... Um, Texts which are chiefly I mean, pre-printing press. You have texts which are chiefly written for for oral performance, even outside of uh, you know so-called oral cultures, um, where the where the you know the writing down of, of of things at all was an afterthought. Even in the later Middle Ages, which is a much more literate culture uh, than you know certainly uh, many earlier cultures, uh, nevertheless. It's still, I say, primarily an oral culture because of the lack of reproduction. Even when you have printed books and people are generally reading and not reciting things, the majority of people who consume those books are not reading them with their eyes. They're listening to them. They're listening to them read aloud. This is one of the objections, by the way, I always have about the assumptions that modern people make about illiterate societies. The, the word illiterate, which is such an insult uh, from, a, from in the mouth of a modern person. And the thing that people take for granted is the fact that uh, you can be, and in fact very many people were in the Middle Ages, both illiterate, not able to actually read and write themselves, and yet quite learned, um, and have read quite extensively, uh, because you have people read to you, whether that's in a family circle, or whether that's in a court setting, or, you know, again, there, there are many uh, kings, for instance, who could not themselves read, and they had their, their clerks who read 
to them and wrote for them. But that doesn't mean that those kings were ignorant and unlearned. They had people to read to them, and that's what they did. So anyway, um, a, a lot of literature was still designed, even when it's being, you know, written and intended to be to be uh, propagated in writing and not, um, you know, merely a, a written-down version of an oral performance, something like Beowulf. Um, nevertheless, that's still there's still a lot of intention, um, of recognition, rather, that the uh, the quite likely primary consumption of the thing that this person is writing down is going to be is going to be or, is going to be oral um, by listeners, not by readers. So therefore, again, the conjunctions work great. Paratactic structure, things joined with ands work really well. This is one of the reasons why these passages in Tolkien are so good to read aloud, because they follow the same techniques that texts which were designed to read aloud followed. Um, you want to give your your reader these cues. Now, notice there are some places where it might seem almost arbitrary where Tolkien puts periods, and I actually in some places think it was, because of course there was no punctuation uh, in medieval um, writing. I, I, punctuation is a is a very modern invention. It's a post-printing press thing, uh, by and large. There were some notations that, that people put to, to make some indications and stuff, but most manuscripts um, don't take advantage of things like line breaks or paragraph breaks or uh, punctuation or any of those newfangled, uh, newfangled uh, aids to the modern reader. Um, uh, of course, the, the ancient Romans are laughing even at the medieval tradition because, of course, the ancient Romans didn't even put spaces between their words. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, again, that's, that's, that's uh, a crutch that a reader shouldn't need. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so uh, in, the, in, in medieval texts, um, you have those cues that are given, and they tend to be given orally. So you don't need punctuation, you don't need periods. Um, but of course, Tolkien has put them in. Um, but there are places where I think, um, you know, for morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them, and then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they slang as slang, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. That whole section, we don't need no stinking punctuation, right? Ignore the punctuation, forget, like, if, if it didn't have it, you wouldn't need it, right? Um, all of those ideas are very, are very clearly, um, are very clearly indicated. The relationships are clearly indicated through the conjunctions. Um, anyway, this is an example, and there are many other examples like this, of paratactic structure, and it's a choice that Tolkien makes. And sometimes it seems a little funny and a little stilted. In a passage like this, people rarely notice it, because, of course, they're doing what this kind of style facilitates the doing of, which is rapid consumption, right? You're, you, you, you get reading through this at pace, and the, the, this whole paragraph and all of these, all of these short independent clauses just roll over you. Um, but there are other times when it seems a little bit more odd. Um, and this is one of the passages, or passages like this, that a couple people were asking me about, because it's more noticeable here. 
Um, let's start with the second part of this slide here. Then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted, and Elrond surrendered the scepter, and laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king, and together they went up into the high city, and all the stars followed in the sky, and all the stars flowered in the sky. And Aragorn the king Alassar wedded Arwen and Domiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer, and the tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment. Another highly paratactic um, section. Why? Why? This is not, and the hooves of wrath rolled over them, right? This is not, we're not getting forward momentum here. We're not losing ourselves in the wild career of Theoden's charge. Um, why? Why? Because why? he has clearly gotten very paratactic. And as Ed points out, this is not the only example. This happens a lot in this chapter. Um, absolutely, it does. We see this kind of structure all over the place in this chapter. Um, what's the effect of that? Um, what, um, what do you think? Kay, I agree. You know, when Kay points out, this is, this is, this is high ceremony. Um, yes, yes, I agree. Um, Daniel's pointing out, he feels like this is, this is sort of moving forward slowly. Um, yeah, though, again, it's it's a little hard because, you know, it's the same technique that he uses to move forward quickly. Um, so we get, we don't get, I mean, if you really wanted to slow the reader down, get densely hypotactic. Look at the top section. Um, this is just a couple paragraphs up. Upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was blue as sapphire and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden and the air was cool and fragrant, the riders came down the northway to the gates of Minas Tirith. That's a hypotactic sentence, right? Look how different that sounds. Um, the sentence, right? The independent clause there is the riders came down, right? The riders came down the northway to the gates of Minas Tirith. That's the idea in that sentence. But look how long it takes us to get there. They, they do this upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was as blue as sapphire and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden and the air was cool and fragrant. The riders came down the northway to the gates of Minas Tirith. See, if you want to slow things down, do that, right? Put in lots of independent causes and join them all together, and um, and you know that that's that that's an expansive moment. Um, upon you know, so again, the, the core idea: the riders came down the northway to the gates of Minas Tirith. When upon the eve of midsummer, okay, that's useful, relevant. In, in, information but wait pause let's dilate and let's tell you what the what that very eve of midsummer was like right so we do this little detour between midsummer and the riders coming down the northway in order to set the scene and of course i'm not mocking it this is a great this is that's that that's very well done and it has that effect and that's a very good effect but you see how different that effect is um that kind of hypotactic structure compared to the paratactic structure, which again he uses not only for pace and acceleration, because I don't think we're supposed to rip through that last paragraph. Then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted, and Elrond surrendered the scepter, and laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king, and together they went... I mean, that doesn't work like that, right? I mean, this is not, and the hooves of wrath rolled over them. Um, what uh, What's the effect then? I mean, I, I certainly agree with Kate. This is this is sort of a moment of, of high ceremony. Um... Uh, I'm not sure uh, how if I'm pronouncing your name properly. Janu, Janu, Yanu, uh, Pettit. I'm not sure 
again, I, I, please correct me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. But anyway, uh, 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 that person whose name I'm having difficulty pronouncing says, um, it sounds like someone finishing telling a story. That, I think, is a really interesting observation because it does seem, I mean, of course, it, 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 it gives that, it says that explicitly there at the end. Um, but that is another place where you get this kind of structure, right? Where this seems to work, where this seems to um, to fit in. Um, you know, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Right? And, it, and, and it's coming like each one. In fact, I, I would, I would I, at the risk of um, really straining things here, the, um, that paragraph, that last paragraph, structurally seems to me almost like a miniature of these whole you know sets of chapters we're talking about this time and next time that is exactly what everybody was complaining about in the movie um that it seemed to come to closure and you thought it was ended and then there was yet another closure and yet another closure and again what i keep saying to those people is stop whining and pay attention like there's a reason you're getting these you know different things are being closed and yet the story is not yet over and that's the point if you think the story's over you're wrong um there's more to come there's you know there's it's, it's not yet closed um then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted, and Elrond surrendered the scepter. Okay, so the scepter's the you know so the, the the scepter of the North Kingdom has been surrendered. Oh wait, and laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king. Okay, that's closure. And together they went up into the high city. The king and queen now going you know re-entering Minas Tirith. We've had Aragorn entered that for you know he didn't want to enter, and then he entered like five minutes later, right? And that was kind of just unofficial. And then he just you know, but then I, but but I'm not going to come in again. I'm going to set up my, my my tents at the gates. And then he you know he came in in the big ceremony, in the the coronation ceremony. So everything's good. Except wait, everything's not good yet, right? The king has still not yet officially, officially, officially returned, um, because his you know his line has not yet been renewed. But now, together they went up to the high city. Okay. And all the stars flowered in the sky. Well, that's kind of nice. You know, see the way that this is echoing this, and we're thinking back to Sam's star and everything. And Aragorn the king, Alessar, wedded Arwen on Domiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer. Okay, so we then have a restatement of what has happened. You know, a much more sort of stately recognition of what was just being described. And the tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment the final parenthesis, right? Looking back on their own personal story. So we have the closure of the of the story of Minas Tirith, right? This, the closure of the story of the return of the king, uh, you know, literally the, about the king's returning. Um, and then the closure, of course, of Aragorn and Arwen's personal um, statements, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, now, Tom makes some interesting points. Um, uh, there are longer, you know, here compared to the uh, to the earlier example of Parataxis that we were looking at, um, the Theoden's Charge. Um, there are longer phrases and words, um, more nouns and fewer verbs than before. Um, I agree. He says it all leads to fulfillment, like that final note that resolves the tension in a piece of music. Um, yeah, fulfillment is an excellent way to end this paragraph, isn't it? Um, and you know this whole section of the book. And uh, but yes, I agree. <clears throat> Even though this is still a paratactic structure, one of the reasons I think that it sounds differently, and one of the reasons why Daniel, I do agree with you that 
this doesn't sound rapid, that this is, if, if anything, the parataxis achieves um, a more measured and stately pace in this paragraph um, <clears throat> than, not only than the charge of Theoden, but I, I think Tom is, is, is hitting on how that happens, how you use the same technique to achieve those very different ends. Um, the, his words, he uses more polysyllabic words here, you know, uh, again, and the hooves of wrath rolled over them. Um, we don't get all that many, uh, you know, again, going back for a second um, to to the previous one, um, you know, <clears throat> and the hosts of Mordor wailed and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. Um, then all of the host of Rohan burst into song and sang as they slew. Do we have a single three-syllable word? No. Nowhere in that whole latter section there do we have a single three-syllable word. From for morning came through until came even to the city. And terrible. Sorry, terrible. Terrible is a three-syllable word. But anyway, you see my point. Um, there are short words, and as Tom was pointing out, very short phrases. Um, often two-word phrases. Sometimes one, right? And they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. Um, whereas, again, in this later one, we not only have uh, longer words, um, but also longer phrases phrases uh, here as well. Together they went up into the high city, and all the stars flowered in the sky. And Aragorn, the king of Lassar, wedded Arwen and Dumiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer. And the tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Chucky's tying the threads of several stories together, and you can see that sort of being done. Not exactly... Um, not exactly sequentially. It's not quite as uh, as 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 uh, rigid as all that. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we can see happening here. Um, whether or not you know, whether or not you think about it, um, as long as you sort of don't get uh, don't allow yourself to become sort of too annoyed by it. Uh, all the ends, that is, especially all the ends starting sentences. That's where it really, generally, I think, comes to the notice of modern readers, um, is when Tolkien is doing that a lot when he's starting a lot of sentences with and, um, with and and but, usually and. Um, so anyway, this is this is I think. Um, we can sort of see how this works. I just wanted to draw attention to this because, again, a lot of people had questions about this. I think it's really, uh, really cool to look at. And since we're talking about this, I want to do one more. This is not... I have not chosen this simply as, you know, an example of parataxis or hypotaxis or something like that. Here, I just wanted to um, talk about this passage because stylistically, I have always been blown away by this passage. Whenever I get here... I find it really powerful and really cool. Um, again, it's something about the way this is structured. Um, and I just wanted to think about this with you. What do you make of this? Um, from all his... This is, of course, right after Frodo has claimed the ring. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran. His slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry, in a last desperate race there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgul, the ringwraiths, and with a storm of wings they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Uh, 
Yeah, Tony, I agree. Um, Tony says, For they were forgotten, um, rings kind of like and Morgoth came uh, in the Silmarillion. Yes, that's a, that's a, 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 a classic Tolkien technique um, to insert a really short, clipped little sentence in there. Um, and Morgoth came. Um, and it stank, right, in the description of the the, the mount of uh, of the Witch King, um, right before. Yeah, exa- Diego had just quoted the same thing, and it stank, exactly. Um, so, the, yes, for they were forgotten. And you'll notice it's a sentence fragment. It often is. Um, um, for they were forgotten. It's just a, a, he, he throws out there, uh, a, I mean, that's just a, well, I mean, okay, it's not it's not a sentence fragment technically. For is being used here as a conjunction. Um, for they were forgotten. They were forgotten. Um, it's actually, that's quite like, and it stank, right? Where you have a conjunction, um, you know, a little short uh, clause, which is, uh, which, which starts with a conjunction. Um, just kind of uh, um, floating there in the middle. What do you make of the structure of this? Look at that first sentence. Um, it's a long one. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran, his, swave, his slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. Now, it's an interesting kind of combination, because... And again, here, I'm just thinking stylistically, not even thinking about, you know, exactly what's going on and sort of its larger significance in the story and everything. I am, you know, what I'm, what I'm kind of talking about here is the effect that Tolkien has with the way that he's structuring his sentences, um, because I have always felt that that was done really fascinatingly in this particular passage here. Um, notice that although it does not have that same kind of momentum. Um, It has neither the stateliness of, you know, the marriage of of Aragorn and Arwen, nor the speed and momentum of the charge of Theoden, but it is a primarily paratactic uh, structure here. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free. That's not very simple, right? You've got this, his mind shook free. So the first part of that seems more hypotactic. Uh, again, we've, we don't have, in fact, subordinate clauses there. We have long prepositional phrases. Um, his mind shook free. Shook free from what? From, shook free from all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars. That's from what? So we have lots of compound objects of prepositions there, um, all coming from what is his mind shaking free from. But again, but the point is, those whole first two lines are this one convoluted thing about every all of these webs, and of course it's talking about webs, and so that's kind of interesting, how all of these things, the fear and treachery and stratagems and wars and policies, all of these things with him at the middle, his mind is shaking free of them. And when it does, what happens? Parataxis happens. And throughout his realm a tremor ran, his slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired. For they were forgotten. And we have, again, that that last one, the one that's isolated there on its own, where he's using the periods very much not arbitrarily. But again, notice, 
you could actually do the same thing here, even if you didn't have the periods. Um, that is the actual punctuation marks there. That last one stands out, for they were forgotten. On the one hand, it's just yet another simple phrase that's or simple clause that's being connected with conjunctions, but it's a different conjunction, right? And it's a conjunction which which has a very different force. This and this, this happened, and this and this and this and this, for they were forgotten. Because they were forgotten. There is this sense in which that one little clause does in fact subordinate uh, everything that came before. All of these things happened because they were forgotten. For they were forgotten. While still maintaining the momentum of the parataxis. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry, in a last desperate race there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgul, the ringwraiths, and with a storm of wings they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Notice how... sort of convoluted that last sentence is. Um... What's the core? What's the main subject and verb of that last sentence? Um, the Nazgul flew, right? The Nazgul flew there. The Nazgul, the ringwraiths, flew there, faster than the winds, at his summons, wheeling with a rending cry in a last desperate race, right? All of those things. I mean, again, it's like the paratactic sentence. You know, the uh, when the sky was as blue as sapphire and white stars open in the east, but the west was still golden. Now, it has a very different effect, right? This is not like, let us pause and dilate over the beauty of the scenery. No, this is having a very different effect. But we have a similar level, in fact, more of um, expansion around, you know, so not, not a bunch of different independent clauses being joined together paratactically, but one simple idea that Nazgul flew with all of this expansion. And then a second one, and with a storm of wings, they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Again, they hurtled, being, you know, the Nazgul flew and they hurtled. Um, Interestingly, those are the same, actually. Those two different clauses that are joined together don't, in fact, say different things. So I'm going to just look at some of the things that you guys are saying there, here. Um, Uh... Good. Good. Diego is pointing out, and Diego, I think you were talking about the first sentence there when I was talking about that, that the basic shape of it is object, verb, subject. Um, uh, it's actually objects, well, the first sentence is more like object, subject, verb. Uh, and it's not exactly object, it doesn't have a direct object. But anyway, you, you get the, 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 uh, Again, we don't start with his mind shaking free, right? We start instead with what his mind is shaking free of, and then get his mind shaking free. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mark makes a Mark Shenham makes a fascinating observation. She says this, he said this is perhaps the only description of Sauron's own actions in the Lord of the Rings. It's true. I mean, some of the people don't talk about him and even talk about what he's doing. Um, but you're right. We get a, a, a comparatively small number of sentences um, in which 
Sauron or a pronoun referring to Sauron is the subject of the sentence. It happens. Um, you know, as for Sauron, he knew where she dwelt, right? Think talking about Shelob. We get we we get a few places like that, um, but uh, but yeah, the focus here on not on reported conversation, you know, not on what Gandalf says or thinks or speculates is going, you know, Sauron is doing or thinking, um, uh, but uh, um, but yeah, it's sort of directly talking about Sauron. And Mark, what do we get when we're directly talking about Sauron? All of this, not exactly indirection. Um, but certainly in that first sentence, this sort of complicated web, all of those things around him, right? And he, his mind, uh, in the middle of all of that, is almost lost. Again, it's not, it's not the primary force of the sentence. We start off that sentence with all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, all his stratagems and wars, and we end the sentence with... A tremor ran, his slaves quailed, his armies halted, and his captains, bereft of will, wavered in despair... Um, for they were forgotten. And notice that's passive, right? They were forgotten. It's For he forgot them. For Sauron had forgotten them, would be an active way of saying that, right? Notice that Sauron is the subject of the action of the... For- he's the one doing the forgetting, but he, 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 he as a subject, is absent from that short sentence. Um, uh, we should, of course, pay attention to the voice of the verb there, because I think that that's significant. So, Mark, what do we get there? It's We get Sauron at the center, this you know this paragraph focusing in not not a unique but but an unusual way um, on you know putting Sauron at the center of the stage and what's there not nothing but um, we don't get him uh, we get all the things that he's doing and things that are being done by him um, the whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. The mind and purpose of the power that wielded them. Notice the indirection in the way it's describing Sauron here. Sauron's whole mind and purpose was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. That's a different sentence. Saying the same thing. See how different that is? Um, At his summons. uh, Notice uh, Sauron's name doesn't even appear here in this paragraph. Um... We get the power that wielded them, but so even there we get a circumlocution um, about them. Um, yeah. Good. Kay says, um, I, I love how they're, the Nazgul are flying far, uh, they are flying far before you can even see what's flying. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's this, I mean, when you read it aloud, um, if the Nazgul are hurtling with a storm of wings faster than the winds, they're going to be out of sight by the time you finish saying this sentence, right? Um, it's almost like I'm going to just, you know, this sentence I'm going to describe, I'm not just going to tell you that they're setting off for Mount Doom. I'm going to basically in one sentence narrate their entire trip to Mount Doom. It, 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 they will get to Mount Doom in about as much time as it takes me to say this entire sentence by the time I finish introducing this idea to you. Um, which is a which is a kind of a counterintuitive way to uh, to convey speed, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Sarah, uh, Sarah uh, King, and Tom Hillman at the, uh, at the same point at the same time are talking about the the word choice there in that last. Um, 
in that last paragraph with the uh, the the sort of the the particular uh, verbs and verbals that he's using there, um, wheeling, rending, hurtled. Uh, Tom suggesting that hurdled suggests lack of control and desperation. Um, yeah, with a rending cry, um, and uh, is uh, is sort of lovely, right? Because of course their cries have been rending before, but usually what it is rending is the minds of the people who are listening to it. Um, but now it is, of course, they who are at risk of being rent. Um, uh, and there's some both desperation and I think a little bit of irony there. Um, uh, okay, let's see. Um, good. Um, Diego says, "Could that be the reason why the style stands out so much in these sentences? In, in these sentences, in writing these sentences in such a way, the different style gives it an ominous feeling, a storm of uh, a storm of being that is his entity." Yeah, thinking Diego, I think, and I'm sorry, I keep going back and trying to catch up. So I know I'm referring to comments you made to things that I was saying a couple minutes ago. Um, but uh, Diego, I think there that you're talking about sort of the indirections uh, in describing Sauron. I think, um, yeah, and of course. I think here also we're getting a nod to Sauron's weakness, right? Sauron has, like Morgoth before him, emptied himself in order to dominate his slaves and guide his captains and drive his armies and all of those things that are now wavering and despairing, bereft of will, because they are forgotten by him. Um, but even when we have the whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent... Uh, that sent if we get a single sentence in which we have Sauron really doing something Sauron this is this that sentence is the climax of Sauron's active role in the entire story right that is what we you know again as far as thinking back to um, to what Mark was describing before places where we actually see Sauron um, doing something right taking action we get circumlocutions and indirections notice even how he's identified the power that wielded them. He's not even Sauron. He's the power that wielded the captains and the slaves and the armies, right? Um, they are an extension of him, but he is nothing but the thing that is extended into them anymore. Um, and he can't even hurdle to Mount Doom himself. He's got to summon uh, and send off the, the ringwraiths uh, to do it. He can't... Uh, as that he can't even do his own hurdling. Um... Yeah, yeah. Good, as Mark says, again, there's a lot of descriptions showing the reach and power of Sauron, but nothing showing him. Um, yes, yes. Now, we do get some about his emotions in the previous uh, paragraph. Ed was talking about how uh, you know, the, the previous paragraph stylistically is like this, too. Um, yeah, in the magnitude of his own folly and his own fear rose like a cloud to choke him, all that stuff. So we do get him um, there, him being vulnerable, Um but again, here we have, uh, 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 yes, oh, great, Sarah, Sarah King says, this is Sauron's hour, and lo, he isn't there, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, very, very, well done, Sarah, that's exactly, that's exactly it, um, well, we could talk about these things a lot more, as you probably know about me by now, I could spend a very long time just focusing in on, you know, word choice and structure of a particular paragraph or section. Uh, but I, I, I do want to move on to some of the other things that I'm talking about. And again, since this is a, 
one of our earlier class sessions. I have to go a little bit sooner tonight because, uh, as usual, at this hour, I have to feed my children. So let me, uh, let me, uh, not because we've exhausted it, but because uh, uh, be, because I have to. Uh, let's uh, let's push on and talk about Aowen. But again, I just wanted to. I hope that that was helpful. Um, uh, you know, sort of at the risk of being pedantic about about these things, but I think that this, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, sentence structure and this, this, uh, the, these, these kinds of stylistic elements are things that a lot of modern readers can overlook and not think about. But if you, if you become aware of them uh, and really look at that stuff carefully, you can begin to see a lot more about what Tolkien is doing and how he does it um, in his uh, in his writing, and you can see some pretty cool stuff. But anyway, let's talk about um, let's talk about Eowyn. Um <clears throat> First thing. So, okay, there are a couple things that I want to... Uh, let me let me sort of frame the subject here. Um, in particular, what I want to talk about with Eowyn <clears throat> is her healing at the end. Um, and I've addressed this in other places. Um, there are a couple things that I think are sort of misunderstandings and red herrings. It's easy for us to misunderstand, I think, um, what, uh, what Tolkien is doing with Eowyn there at the end. And I think that people who do that are really missing out on some really cool stuff that Tolkien is thinking about. Um, or certainly, at least I guess I would say, that the story seems to be interested in. Um, so there are two uh, two sort of uh, two things that I protest against uh, in understanding Eowyn, and I'm thinking here not only of Eowyn, um, both Eowyn in her confrontation with Aragorn before he goes to the Paths of the Dead, um, uh, Eowyn in her uh, restlessness when she first gets out of bed at the Houses of the Healing, and then uh, Eowyn's final moment of healing <coughs> in her betrothal to Faramir. Um, the first thing that I... the first And this I, I consider to be a very serious red herring, um, is the red herring of romance, as I call it. Um, that is, if we read Eowyn's story, and we are thinking of Eowyn's story only in terms of uh, romance and relationship. This is just this is about Eowyn who falls desperately in love with Aragorn, and Aragorn disses her, and then finally she ends up with Faramir, and then is happy because you know she's then in a happy relationship with her man at the end. If that's how you're reading the Eowyn story, you're getting. Um, it's not just that you're not getting ninety percent of it, but I think that you're that that's it's it's fundamentally based on a misunderstanding. Um, it's not I don't think about that really at all. Not that there's no romance involved, but uh, but again, I, I think that, that is very far from the heart uh, of Eowyn's story. Um, this is um, in the Houses of the Healing, of course, right after. Um, when Aragorn has come to Eowyn's bedside when she's unconscious, um, and Eomir is there, and Eomir has just said rather diffidently uh, and cautiously to Aragorn that um, he didn't know that she'd been touched by any frost until she looked on him, and he's like, "I, I, I hold you blameless in this, right?" He, he's, he's cough. He's like, I, 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 "I'm not saying it's your fault, but, uh, uh, but I think the problem is you, actually, Aragorn." And here's Aragorn's response. But Aragorn said, I saw also what you saw, Eomir. Few other griefs amid the ill chances of this world have more bitterness and shame for a man's heart than to behold the love of a lady so fair and brave that cannot be returned. 
Sorrow and pity have followed me ever since I left her, desperate in Dunharrow, and rode to the paths of the dead. And no fear upon that way was so present as the fear of what might befall her. And yet, Aemir, I say to you that she loves you more truly than me, for you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought, a hope of glory and great deeds, and lands far from the fields of Rohan. Um, okay. First of all, on a very side note, I've always thought that if Eowyn ever had written in uh, to the Dear Abbey column, she would have signed her name Desperate in Dunharrow. Um, but anyway, um, what do we see here? What you see, We see what Aragorn is saying. He is recognizing, of course, yes, like, I, 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 I know that she had a crush on me, and I felt really bad about the fact that I couldn't return it. Um, but you see the larger point that he's making here. Um, not just, I say to you that she loves you more truly than me, but look at his interpretation at the end. For you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought, a hope of glory and great deeds, and lands far from the fields of Rohan. Um, he recognizes she doesn't love him. She doesn't know him. Right? This is not a... And, and, and Aragorn dismisses this like... I saw him across the room, and he was my soulmate. Though you'll notice, you may remember how the narrator flirts with that idea. Remember that moment when the first time uh, um, uh, Aragorn and, a- and Eowyn see each other across the hall? And the narrator does that kind of alarming thing where he says, And thus for the first time in the full light of day did Aragorn behold Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and and thus too did she see him, tall heir of kings, right? There's this moment, and you're like, Wait a second, what happened there, right? Uh, I mean, the, the, the narrator, like... You know, has this mo- it does what what seems to me like the narrative equivalent of like a f- a, f- a like s- a like super slow mo moment with like glossy image and everything as like they turn and look at each other. I mean, it's it it really kind of sounds like that. Um, but uh, yeah, exactly, Arthur. That's exactly Arthur was thinking the same thing. That's where they go slow mo. Um, yeah, exactly. So it it we're. You know, it kind of sounds like that. But, Aragorn points out, Aragorn basically punctures that. This is not a, I saw my soulmate across the room kind of thing. In me, she loves only a shadow and a thought. She loves me, but she loves me only because he is, in a sense, a means to an end. Um, She wants out of there, but she doesn't want out of there with just anybody, right? He is this godsend to her because she feels like she's in a cage and she wants out. But hey, it's not so again. It's not just like she she wants out with any guy who comes along. I mean, hey, she could have had worm tongue if she'd wanted that. But instead, uh, she sees this opportunity. I could marry him. And he is the heir of kings. He is this figure of legend who has risen out of the grass, right? Oh my goodness! Hope of glory and great. De- this is this is. That's like he is the exact opposite of everything that she hates, of everything that she's um, that she's trapped in, right? Um, and he, so, he, so he recognizes that again. This is not about she really loves me, and I've dissed her, and now she's mad about that. Um, there's a much deeper problem with Eowyn. Her attachment to Aragorn is... And I don't mean problem with her in the sense that like, she's got a diagnosable issue, but rather um, her her love of Aragorn is a symptom. It's not a cause. Um, she does love Aragorn. Um, but um, 
yeah, it's um, but it's not the cause. It's 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 very far from the whole story or even the root of the issue. Um, it's only a side effect. It's only it's only one way in which, um, it's only one way in which uh, her sort of other desires is um, is being manifested. So that's one thing that I one one element of the Aowen story here at the end that I think is uh, is is a, a very significant red herring. The other one, and this is more complicated, is gender. Um, very many people want to read Eowyn's moment at the end where she accepts Faramir as a reassertion of traditional gender roles. That Eowyn is this uppity woman who, uh, you know, is trying to leave her sphere, is daring to leave her sphere and enter the man's world. She cross-dresses like a great, you know, like a classic Shakespearean heroine. She cross-dresses, she, she, she rides with the, with, with the, uh, with the, 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 the Knights of Gondor. Um, she wants masculine glory. She's not content with the feminine sphere. And then in the end, she, apologizes, right? Oh no, I agree. I take it all back. I'm going to get married, be a good wife, go back into the feminine sphere. Um, I'm, I'll be a shield maiden no longer. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to retire from trying, so I'm just going to be contentedly female again and everything is right with the world again because the uppity woman has gone back to her place. That's a very common reading of what happens with Eowyn at the end. Um, in many ways, that is an argument. That's a reading which fits many of the facts. It sort of it 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 fits crudely many of the facts. But I find that reading completely tone deaf, completely tone deaf. Um, and one passage that really jumped out at me in this past reading, and I didn't talk about it at the time because I've been saving it until we got to here uh, to talk about it. Um, look at this exchange. Between this is uh, Aragorn and Eowyn before the paths of the dead. Your duty is with your people, he answered. Too often have I heard of duty, she cried. But am I not of the house of Eoro, a shield maiden and not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough. Since they falter no longer, it seems, may I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honor, he answered. But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until their lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge were he weary of it or no. Shall I always be chosen, she said bitterly? Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart to mind the house while they win renown and find food and beds when they return? A time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be less valiant, because they are unpraised. And she answered, All your words are but to say, You are a woman, and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Eoral, and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain or death. What do you fear, lady? he asked. A cage, she said, to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. Okay. Notice, Eowyn plays the gender card here, right? She is, she, she invokes this. Um, so if, 
if people, if you know, as I, I believe that the uh, the sort of the the gender roles based interpretation of Eowyn's healing and, re- and reconciliation at the end, uh, you know, I, I I don't agree with that. But but Eowyn started it, right? She she goes there. Um, she 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 invokes this. In fact, you know, she plays this sort of proto feminist card, right? Um. Yes. But notice what Aragorn is saying. It's easy to pay attention to that paragraph. All your words are but to say you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when she plays that card, she's losing. She plays that card because she's losing. And look at why she's losing. Aragorn does not play that card. He does not say you're a woman and you're... This is, you know... Run along, little girl, and leave, you know, the fighting to the boys. That is not Aragorn's argument. In fact, Aragorn's argument, arguably, is almost the opposite of that. Your duty is with your people. She says, am I not of the house of Eorl? I'm a shield maiden and not a dry nurse. Um, May I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honor. Did you not accept the charge to govern the people until your until their lord's return? Remember the circumstances of that. How did she get chosen to govern the people until their lord's return? She said, uh, Theoden says, I'm going to go away, but I've got to leave somebody in charge. In whom do the people trust? And they say, the house of Aorl. And he's like, but uh, Aemir's got to come with me. I can't leave Aemir. He's like the general of the, you know, he's like the, the last of the marshals. You know, the, the, he, he's the ranking uh, 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 general, basically, in the in the army. Um, he's got to come. And he said, no, 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 I said not Aemir, but the House of Aorl, and he's not the last. There's Eowyn. In other words, so she's saying, am I not of the House of Aorl? And Aragorn says, yeah, you are of the House of Aorl, so act like it. Right, you have been given a trust not because you're a woman, but because you're of the house of Aeorl. You have put in, you have been put in the, you have been put in a position ignoring gender. It was explicitly ignored. Right, Theoden was 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 paying attention to gender. You know, he's like, oh boy, there's nobody. Only Aemir is left in the house of Aeorl, and they're like, hey, Dumbo, right? They smack smack Theoden upside the head and like, you're forgetting there is another one in the house of Aeorl. Don't be so don't don't be so old fashioned, Theoden. We have a woman. She she's she's female, yes, but she's of the house of Aeorl, and she's high hearted, and everybody loves her. Um, she can she, you know let her be as lord unto us. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's break with tradition. Let's ignore gender roles and assign Eowyn in this role. So again, so she's been placed in this role in defiance of traditional gender roles, right? And that's what Aragorn is invoking. Um. Few people can spend their lives as they will with honor. You've got to do what you're supposed to do, and you have been given a charge. You have accepted a charge, again, which has nothing to do with your gender, but has everything to do with the position that you have with the position, by the way, that you're just claiming, am I not of the house of Aeorl? Yeah, so act like it, right? Shall I always be chosen? Shall I always be left behind when the writers depart? She says, and she starts sounding a little bit more... Well, a little bit more childish there, right? And he sort of puts this in perspective. You know, I, t- to mind the house while they win renown, why can't I ever go and die in battle like everybody else, right? And he's like, 
you know, let's rethink this here a little bit, <laughs> right? You've been given a charge, and it's an important charge. It's not just keep the house until the men come home, and if they don't come home, then you can burn it, because whatever, the house is only good for, you know, the men to use. Again, not at all what he's saying. Remember the... Uh, Remember the speech that Baragon gives back in that passage where Pippin is saying at least we should be left upon we should be left upon our knees, right? And Baragon refers to you know fastnesses in the hills and and you know yet some hope will be kept alive in a in a in a, in a distant valley, right? If do you remember the passage I'm talking about there? I didn't quote it for you here, um, but um, um, but that's what Eowyn is in charge of, right? Um, she is in she is not being left out of all the fun she has been put in uh put in charge of put in, you know the, the 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 hope for the future of their people has been put in her care that is the significance of the charge that she's been given now, she doesn't like it because it's not what she wants um but aragorn is pointing out uh you know again the problem here is not that you're a woman because in fact you've not been given woman's work you were explicitly given a position which uh, everyone was initially assuming, if Aiden was initially assuming, w- would go to a man. Then, and that's when she plays the gender card, right? All your words are but to say, no, they're not but to say that, Eowyn. Um, and, but so she sort of falls back on the gender card there at the end. Um, anyway, um, so I think it's really fascinating to see, again, that, that the gender role and gender stereotype issue is explicitly evoked by Eowyn. But again, if you look at the context of how it's evoked, even when, even when Aragorn says one thing which, which, you know, which many feminists would point to as a sign that Aragorn clearly is putting her into that female role, he says that he could not give her leave to go without the permission of her father and her brother. Oh, so she's in the control, the, the, the patriarchal control of her male relatives, right? She can't make up her own mind. No, she can't make up her own mind, because not only is she the daughter and sister of Theoden and, uh, and Aemir, she is also a captain who is, has her, they are above her in the political hierarchy that she has sworn into. She accepted the position at, to rule as lord over the Aorlingas till they return. Um, no, she could not, as as Aragorn says, no other marshal. If some other marshal had stayed back home, if, if it had been Elfhelm or Grimbold or somebody who had stayed home and done this and, 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 and been in this position, they too could not leave without the permission of Aemir, their ranking superior, or Theoden, their king. That's how it works. Um, so, yeah, as... and. Rebecca was just pointing uh, that out too—that they are her superiors in rank. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Carolyn makes a wonderful point, and and Carolyn better in many ways than all of the points that I've been making. Um, Carolyn Morehouse says, uh, "Eowyn was forgetting that serving was the greatest and noblest position in Tolkien's world. Sam spends the whole book serving Frodo." Um, yes, that shows us part of the problem. Right, in as much as we're, you know, to, to to sort of diagnose what is wrong with Eowyn, what is her her problem is not not that she's a woman. Her problem is not that she is, uh, you know, that she wants to enter the masculine sphere, which is inappropriate, and we can't allow women to do that. That's not the problem. Um, the problem is she is buying into uh, a worldview, which is self-destructive of course quite explicitly in her in her um 
case, self-destructive. But also, she is failing in a way which is similar to the way in which Boromir failed, actually. Um, and that is not being enough like Sam. Uh, Faramir is better, does better because he's more like Sam. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's, let's, let's recall this here. Uh, oops, sorry. Um, lessons from Faramir. Two passages from the two towers. This is Faramir talking about sort of the, uh, uh, political philosophy of Gondor, uh, and his own, um, points of view. This, remember this, those passages where he's talking about, you know, the high men and the middle men and the wild men. Yet now if the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more like to us, enhanced in arts and gentleness, we too have become more like to them, and can scarce claim any longer the title high. We are become middlemen of the twilight, but with memory of other things. For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slaying, we esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. Um, of course, he goes on to say, such a man was Boromir, right? Um, uh, so, you know, the, the, Boromir is, again, though he loves his brother, he recognizes Boromir was the poster child of this new kind of of, of post-Numenorean Gondorian guy, right? Um, uh, and Faramir is saying, you know, that whole worldview, that worldview where you look at, where you love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport, you know, a pastime that you enjoy and seek out, and an end in itself. He very much sees war and battle as only a means as he goes on to explain. This is actually an earlier passage. Um, I was referring last time to the that passage in the Two Towers where Faramir sort of shows, gives his, like, anti-ring monologue, um, uh, sort of illustrating why the ring didn't tempt him. This is the passage I was talking about. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tower, the right white tree in flower again in the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace, Minas Anor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not as a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have, lo- I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man, old and wise. Um... I love only that which they defend. I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. Eowyn does. He loves only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor. For Eowyn, in all of her talk, glory, glory achieved, glory and honor achieved in battle is the end. Battle for the sake of what? Who knows? Who cares? I mean... They're fighting. They're good guys. They're on the right side, right? But that's not what she's focused on. Again, think of the role that she has. This, you know, Carolyn. I'm sort of coming back to your point about the the position of service that she was in. She has been left the caretaker 
of you know the cradle of their society, um, the last vestige and, and stronghold um, of their people, of their culture. Um, if her perspective were more like Faramir, she would see that as a, a very sacred trust, right? As a as a you know, but instead she wants to throw that aside for the sake of throw that end aside for the sake of the means, right? No honor in battle, right? Uh, a glorious death in battle. That's that's the um, um, that's the pinnacle here, right? Um, yeah, right. Diego says uh, as opposed to her cage, right? Exactly. She 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 sees it only uh, she sees it only as 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 her cage. She cannot because of how she's restricted. She cannot um, distinguish herself. Um, now, one thing I will say, it does seem to me fair to say, that is, if we invest in the worldview that Faramir describes here in that first paragraph, that is, the, the, the way that Faramir describes the sort of the culture of the, the values of the Rohirrim, I should say, uh, and as we hear Eowyn voice them as well, if you buy into that, that um, the, that uh, law, war and valor are both a sport and an end. They they are an end. That the greatest of ends is to distinguish yourself, to to to, at, to attain honor and glory through your prowess in battle. If that is in fact the highest end in your culture, then women get the shaft. No two ways about that, right? She can't do it, and she and she recognizes that, and she chafes at that, right? I want honor and glory too. Why shouldn't I? Right, I'm a shield maiden. I'm of the house of Aeoral. Um, I want if if I don't, if I give up on that, then what do I have? Nothing. No chance of achieving personal honor and glory, because she was acting right, Carolyn. She was acting like Sam. She was she was waiting on. She was serving Theoden at least as devotedly as Sam was serving Frodo. The difference was she didn't like it. Right. Um, she she speaks of it scathingly as being a dry nurse. Right. Um, because there's no honor there, there's no glory there. Again, within the and within that worldview, in a sense, she's right. Um, um, so what happens now? Let's go up to Faramir and Eowyn in the houses of healing there in chapter five. Um, but I do not desire healing," she said. "I wish to ride to war like my brother Aemir." Or better, like Theoden the king, for he died and has both honor and peace. That's her goal, right? I mean, we've known that she's going seeking death. She's been quite open about that, right? In her mind, Theoden, he's living the dream. Well, okay, he died the dream, right? Anyway, his is the is the ideal end. You can't do better than Theoden. Achieve honor, great honor, and great glory. And then peace thereafter, right? There can be no, there can be no come down from that, right? You know, that's this is that's optimal. It's perfect. I wish that I could be just like Theoden. That's what I want to be uh, when I grow up. That's what Eowyn says. Then, uh, then you know, I'm skipping a little bit. And, you know, so she has just said that she wants him to speak more plainly. Then Eowyn of Rohan, I say to you that you are beautiful. In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright, and maidens fairer still. But neither flower nor lady have I seen till now in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon our world, and when it comes I hope to face it steadily, 
but it would ease my heart if, while the sun yet shines, I could see you still. For you and I have both passed under the wings of the shadow, and the same hand drew us back. Alas, not me, Lord, she said. Shadow lies on me still. Look not to me for healing. I am a shield maiden, and my hand is ungentle. Um, what do we, uh, what do we, what do we learn from this? Apart from the fact, Arthur, I agree, that Faramir is a smooth operator. Um, that's, uh, it's a pretty good line right there. Though, I think this is only Faramir's second smoothest line. Uh, my favorite, and it, it, it's got a rank as one of my favorite pickup lines ever, um, is when, uh, um, I, Faramir talks about his dream of Numenor, right? I often dream of it. Uh, and then he said, you know, darkness unescapable is coming upon us. And she's like, darkness unescapable. And she, 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 you know, snuggles up in closer to her. Um, uh, that, that was, that was, that's even smoother, actually. Though I wouldn't suggest trying to apply this in practice. Um, I, I, I have to think that you'd have a pretty low rate of success, you know, if you like go up to uh, a woman at a party and be like, I see darkness unescapable coming down upon us. Um, that probably that probably wouldn't work. But anyway, um, <laughs> Diego says the conditions would not be perfect. Yeah, it's really a situational kind of line there uh, that, uh, that that Faramir delivers at that particular moment. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, what um, so with 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 Faramir here? Notice, first of all, he's expressing his own, his own sense of weakness, right? Um, you know, it may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon our world, and when it comes, I hope to face it steadily. But I need help. Right? I hope to face it steadily. I'm not certain that I'm going to face it steadily, but it would ease my heart if, while the sun yet shines, I could see you still. Um, you can, you in fact have something to offer to me. Like, I, I need you in some way. Um, and it's an interesting thing to say to her right now, in part because, of course, you see what she's been doing all along. Her whole, I seek death in battle. At the end of the day, that is, and this might sound harsh, a completely selfish point of view. She's not thinking of Theoden, dry nurse. She's not thinking of her people. It's a cage. She's not, she doesn't care anything about the charge that she's been given. Um, she is seeking only glory for herself and a glorious death. Aragorn also suggests it's not a, it wasn't a, it was never about me. It was always about her, right? She saw in me a hope of glory, um, a path of escape, a way for her to make her own dreams for herself come true and to distinguish herself. And again, I know this, it sounds really harsh to say all these things about Eowyn. I'm not saying I think she's an awful, horrible person, um, but that does seem to be the loop that she's caught up in. Um, is fundamentally thinking of herself. And again, that gesture that Faramir makes, where he invites her to have pity on him, right? She doesn't want his pity, but she doesn't give pity either. And that's what he's inviting her to do, which I think is a, is a fascinating move on his part. Um, and I, again, I, you know, though I've been joking about it, I, of course, I do not see Faramir here as, uh, as being a, 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 a sort of you know, conniving seducer of Eowyn here, um, because of course, also he he recogn- he he can see this is this is her. I mean, she's declared pretty clearly. You know, I, I wish I could ride into battle like Theoden the king. Um, you know, he can sort of see that 
she has a problem here. Um, Alas, not me, Lord. Look, shadow lies on me still. Look not to me for healing. Now, shadow lies on me still. He's just referred to Aragorn, right? The same hand drew us back, and she, she um, pulls back from that, right? Alas, not me. No, no, no. He, his hand did not draw me back. Um, she has not drawn back. I think we can see we can we can hear that in a couple different ways, right? Um, no, no, the, just the the shadow lies on me still. I have not been pulled back. I have not been saved. Um, I am still in shadow. I was always in shadow, and the shadow has nothing to do with. It's not like you think, right? Um, but also, no, he could have drawn me back, but he didn't draw me back, right? He turned away from me and went into the shadows on his own. Um, but um. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Lagarde points out, uh, uh, Sarah, you make a really good point, a very good reminder. Um, what's the age of Eowyn in these stories? She's like 23, that sounds right. I don't remember exactly, Sarah. Somebody can look it up in the uh, in the Tale of Years. Eowyn's birth is mentioned. You can, you can, you can do the math. But yeah, she's, um, she's around there, very early 20s, um, I think, at the time of the story. It is important to remember that she is quite young. Um, Kay says she's selfish, but not in an evil way, in the way that people in great pain are people in great pain are selfish because they cannot see beyond their pain. She cannot see beyond her despair. An interesting uh, point of contrast, um, of course, is Eowyn and Denethor. Um, they're two characters that are really interesting to put next to each other. Both of them seeking death. Both of them in despair. Both of them um, self-absorbed basically. Both of them not able to look beyond themselves, both of them deserting their posts, both of them... I mean, there's a lot of... Um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, similarities there. So what is Faramir doing? Again, certainly his first move here with her is to invite her to show pity to him. That invitation to come out of her shell, to turn away from that shadow, to turn away from that darkness. Um, and find something else. Um, let's uh, look at her healing here. I wished to be loved by another, she answered, but I desire no man's pity. That I know, he said. You desired to have the love of the Lord Aragorn, because he was high and puissant, and you wished to have renown and glory, and to be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great captain made to a young soldier, he seemed to you admirable. And for so he is, a lord among men, the greatest that now is. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desired to have nothing unless a brave death in battle. Look at me, Eowyn. And Eowyn looked at Faramir long and steadily, and Faramir said, Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart, Eowyn, but I do not offer you my pity. For you are a lady high and valiant, and have yourself won renown that shall not be forgotten. And you are a lady beautiful, I deem, beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell. And I love you. That's a really great one of those little uh, and sentences, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot nicer than and it stank. I have to say. And I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow, but now were you sorrowless, without fear or any lack? Were you the blissful queen of Gondor? Still, I would love you, Eowyn. Do you not love me? Little glimpse in the background of uh, of uh, a Camelot situation emerging <laughs> here uh, in Minas Tirith, uh, theoretically. 
Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it, and suddenly her winter passed and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minas Anor, the Tower of the Sun, she said, and behold, the shadow has... And what? The shadow has departed. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and love all things that grow and are not barren. And she looked, and again she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. That is well, he said, for I am not a king. Yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will. And if she will, then let us cross the river, and in happier days let us dwell in fair Athelion, and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there, if the white lady comes. Okay. Twenty-four, says Mark. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that. Yeah, so we were we were approximately right. Kay points out, Faramir takes her out into the open air like Gandalf does to Theoden. Um, that, of course, is another very apt parallel to look at um, the healing of Eowyn and compare it to the healing of Theoden. Look at what Gandalf does for Theoden, what Faramir does for Eowyn. The two of them are similar. And remember, Gandalf draws that connection. Think you that Wormtongue had words for Theoden only, right? She has been... Um, uh, influenced by Wormtongue and by that evil in a similar way. Um, yeah, Timothy says he is offering uh, for her to find a new form of heroism. Exactly. This is an invitation not to, you know, leave aside your ideas of glory and, and, and get back in the kitchen. This is an invitation to adopt a different worldview, to turn away uh, from that worldview. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kay points out to take joy not only in the songs of slaying, uh, she says. Um, you're right, Kay, she doesn't forswear taking of joy in the songs of slaying, right? Um, I still like a uh, song of slaying every now and again, who doesn't, right? But, uh, but I, I shall not only take joy in the songs of, of, of slaying. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. She's going to become a healer. This is where I think most demonstrably and most clearly the people who want to do a very narrow kind of gender reading of Eowyn here totally miss the boat. Um, if you think that turning from being a shield maiden to being a healer is leaving a masculine sphere and entering a feminine sphere, you've missed everything that Tolkien has said about healing uh, over uh, over the the certainly the, the the whole rest of the book, but certainly the last few chapters. Most notably, of course, the hands of the king or the hands of the healer and all that kind of thing. Um, it has been very heavily emphasized by Faramir initially in those Two Towers passages that we were looking at before, um, and more forcefully now. Remember, the Warden has just been commenting on how passing strange it seems to him that the, 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 hand, the, you know, the hands of a hewer should also wield the sword. Um, but it used to be that way in, in, in Gondor in old days. Um, uh, yes, yes, as Diego says, the king is, the king is both. Um, so yes, being a healer, is, is th that is not a feminine sphere at all. It is rather the rejection of... It's, and it, but it's even more than just the rejection of death for life. She was seeking death and now she's seeking life. 
that's a big deal. Again, that's not that has nothing to do with gender. Um, uh, she is she is turning away from death and she is embracing life. That's a good thing. She's also turning away from herself and towards others. Life, not only for herself, but life for others. I shall dedicate myself uh, to nourishing and healing life and to, to bringing healing and growth to other things and other people. And Faramir speaks of her in a downright Galadriel-esque way there in the end. All things will grow with joy there if the White Lady comes. Um, you will be a blessing to the very plants of Ithilien by your presence, right? Um, and again, that's that's more than just... Much more, I would say, um, than uh, sort of entering some kind of uh, feminine... Um, f- feminine sphere. As Kay points out, gardening isn't exactly feminine either. Um... No, exactly. Um, there, let, uh, let us dwell in Ferrothilian and there make a garden. This is, this is a thing that, um, Faramir is embracing. Like, now he has embraced this. We saw that he was embracing this before. Um, but, but yeah, exactly, this is the same point of view that he has had. Um, you know, and their gardeners must be an honor. Remember that line in the two towers, right? When he's, when he's reflecting on, uh, the Shire and all that he's heard about the Shire and all that he's seen, the evidence that he's seen in Frodo and Sam, um, his comment on the Shire, his praise for the Shire is that th- their gardeners must be um, uh, must be greatly honored. Um, uh, yeah, 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 sort of. Um, but again, it is it is a testimony to that um, worldview which seeks higher things, which which seeks life and healing and, you know, the growth and nourishing of things, rather than making valor and war both a sport and an end, um, which only takes joy in the songs of slaying. Um, I'm not going to take joy only in killing, I'm going to take joy in healing um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and life. Um, yeah, good. Diego says, making a garden also, if you see it not as an end, but a means, it points out uh, to what good and peaceful, uh, it points out to what good and peaceful end it would be for them to live among a garden that they take care of. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just, um, yeah, and you think about the, you know, think of course about Sam gardening. Well, we'll get more of that in class next time. We'll come back to Sam gardening, uh, of course, in the, in our, in our sixth class, when we look at the last few chapters, uh, of, uh, of book six. But yeah, we can certainly see gardening certainly being a means to blessing others, right? Not just the, uh, the plants and creatures that you are tending, but the way in which that garden itself becomes a blessing for other people, um, uh, and other creatures as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, um, I, uh, I don't have much more time. I got through eight slides, which was pretty good. I got through two of the three things I wanted to talk about today, which is okay. The, uh, thing that, which is making me laugh at myself is that the one part I didn't get to is the part that the, I, that I gave the title of the class to, the very wine of blessedness, um, thinking about the field of Cormelin. Um, uh, so I, I, but I, I'm not gonna, 
I'm not going to rush through that. We'll start with that at the beginning of class next time. And it, because it has to do, you know, I'll just sort of leave you with a question again. Um, and it's something that you can be th continuing to think about because it's as relevant to the next section as to this. And that is, what's going on? Why do we get this stuff? Um, Luke uh, sent me a really good email, and one of his questions was, why do we get this business with Eowyn and um, and uh, and Faramir? Uh, as he said, this seems like a really good candidate for the um, for the appendices. Why do we take time to get um, the story of the betrothal of Faramir and Eowyn? Why you know why do we get this? And now you know we, we now interrupt uh, the return of the king to Minas Tirith to you know give you this scene on the walls. Um, uh, that's, um, it, I, I think it's a very good question. What is the point here? But, but I see it as part of that larger question. Why are we getting any of this? Um, you know, and certainly why do we get it in the way that we do? Why do we get so many chapters? Why do we get six chapters of, um, of wind down? To the end of you know between the destruction of the ring and the end of the story, six full chapters. Why? Why? Um, what role does this play? What role does the scouring of the Shire play, which we'll talk about next time? Um, you think of all of the the sort of the ways in which we go back, um, you know, sort of retracing the journey to some extent. Um, how does this work, and um, and how is this? Um, uh, how is this functioning? You know, Ed says, and I agree with you, Ed, that uh, he says, you know, every story must be closed, even the story of Bill the Pony. Uh, Tolkien wants closure. I agree, Tolkien does want closure, and we get a whole lot of closure. Not complete closure, right? Treebeard's story is still not closed. Um, but uh, but we get a lot of closure, certainly, uh, in these things. Uh, and I, and I, I do agree with you. That is something that, that Tolkien does seem to take pleasure in. Um, and if you can muster the patience for it, it is quite pleasant to have all of these things uh, uh, to have all of these things um, wound up as they are. But I would say that that is an insufficient excuse. That is, we could get that in an, in, in an appendix. This happens sometimes, right? Where you get like an epilogue. You know, we could, we could, we could have closed the story after the destruction of the ring and then just have an epilogue. Epilogue. Here's what happened to all the other characters afterwards, right? That's a fairly common trope. Why, why don't we do that? Um, no, it seems central to the story to do this stuff in the story, even though we run the risk of having... Because, again, it's not... In a way, what happens in the book is more pronounced than in the films. The Lord of the Rings is divided into six books. Book six is one-third climax, two-thirds denouement, Right? Um, why? What's the role? Um, what? How does this stuff work? So anyway, this this is the big question I want to come back to next time, um, and uh, we'll pick up on some of the the stuff that I wanted to say about the field of Cormallon uh, and some of these other things. I want to look at the happily ever afters that we get um, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, and um, uh, and how those things how those things work and sometimes don't work. Um, so anyway. This is all a long-winded 
justification, or rather me talking myself into the fact that putting this off until next time, it's not a disaster or anything. It's Actually, it's going to be better. It's totally superior. In fact, had I been a better planner, I'd have planned it that way all along. Yeah. So forget I said that about wanting to do three things. I meant two things in this class, obviously. And then that other thing is really what we're going to do next time. So I'm glad I've fully convinced myself of this. So we'll look forward to talking about closure and endings and happy endings and tears uh, and all of those kinds of things uh, in class next time as we look at the end. And then we'll talk about the appendices uh, for a couple weeks. Um, Yes, as Alyssa says, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Oh yeah, uh, the time of the next class. Um, Remember, it's on, if you go to the the web page on the MythGuard.org homepage, the the web page for the class, you see the the schedule for the full class. Next week, of course, next Thursday is Thanksgiving in America. Um, So a lot of people, I know it's not a great time necessarily for class. Um, So we're going to do class on Friday night. Uh, so it'll be the, the, the nighttime slot, uh, uh, the 9.30 p.m. Eastern time slot on Friday evening. Um, so uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the time of the next class. So thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, asking that, uh, Mark. And I think somebody else, uh, Sarah, yeah, Sarah Lagarde was asking that too. So anyway, thanks a lot for, uh, uh, for joining us for joining me tonight uh and i look forward to finishing book six uh though not yet the entire story next time so thanks very much everybody have a good weekend and happy thanksgiving well i'll say happy thanksgiving even to people who aren't americans you can still have happy thanksgiving even if you're not celebrating thanksgiving uh think of us while we're celebrating thanksgiving and have a happy day that day anyhow how about that uh thanks a lot everybody good night